welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 372 and a return of our guest from episodes 260 and 261 on the podcast, now the current director of percussion studies at the University of Northern Colorado, percussionist, educator, and freelancer, Tim Fierst. We'll get back to him shortly. But first up, Marching Mizzou updates. The Mizzou football team closed out its home schedule this year with a wild 33-30 victory over the University of Florida this past weekend. The game featured a ton of lead changes throughout the second half and required a conversion on 4th and 17 in the final seconds to continue the game-winning drive that set up the eventual go-ahead field goal. The victory puts us at 9-2 on the season, keeps us ranked at number 9 in the college football playoff rankings, and continues our best season in a decade. The band finished out its home season with a repeat performance of the last two segments of our Metallica show, voted on, as always, by the students of Marching Mizzou. We'll also be saying goodbye to over 60 senior students this year, which is sad and exciting, as they've been great contributors to the ensemble. We'll see how the bowl game situation lays out for us, but we're hoping for something close to New Year's Day. Stay tuned. Next up, PASIC 2023. I'll be continuing to discuss what I saw at PASIC over these next bunch of episodes, but I'll focus today on today's guest, Tim Fierst. Tim and I talked again after I had him on the show in the fall of 2021 when Tim was teaching at the University of Texas at Permian Basin. Since that time, Tim's been continuing to move his career forward, did great work at UTPB, and continues on in a new role that he considers himself very fortunate to have at his new institution in Colorado. As this was part of the PASIC preview episodes, Tim will be discussing what he presented at PASIC in the opening spot. Fortunately, I was able to catch much of Tim's presentation on multi-percussion fundamentals at PASIC, and I found it to be quite good. He presented his information clearly and carefully and was very interactive with the audience, asking a lot of questions and even having students come up and try out some of what he was talking about in a live teaching setting. I thought he did a great job. Congrats, Tim. We'll catch up with Tim on his goings-on since 2021, which, along with his PASIC presentation, will include his new position at the University of Northern Colorado, a deep dive into the Washington Commanders, new video games, old Christmas movies, and a lot more. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on November 1st, 2023, and it begins right now. And my clinic is called Multi-Percussion Fundamentals. This is a really unique fundamentals clinic because in the past you have seen fundamentals clinics that were for snare drum or for mallets or for timpani or accessories. And I'm really grateful to the education committee, to PAS, to be able to present my multi-percussion fundamentals clinic. The specific title of this is called Practice Strategies for Any Piece. It's kind of interesting and kind of the way that this idea came about was that I remember Todd Meehan at Baylor always talks about how you need to learn the instrument and not the repertoire, how you need to have fundamentals on all these instruments that we practice. And with all of these different instruments that we have, we have stick control, 
by George Stone. We have Lee's book, Method of Movement. We have Saul Goodman's Modern Method for Timpani and such. But for the instrument of multi-percussion, a lot of it is at the mercy of that repertoire. So we, so in many ways, we have to learn the repertoire in order to learn the instrument. And so what this clinic is designed to do is embark on this journey of explaining how to build fundamentals with multi-percussion while recognizing that the content of each piece is going to be different. I always found that there were two main obstacles with learning multi-percussion solos. There is getting comfortable with the setup, and then there's getting comfortable with the score. I mean, you and I both know that percussion notation is not universal, and it never will be. Well, maybe give or take 400 years of development like other instruments out there have had, like piano and violin and so forth and so on. But what it is kind of designed to do is talk about ways to get used to the notation of a multi-percussion solo. And then also on the kinesthetic side, get used to the physical uh, physical logistics with a multi-percussion setup, whether you're playing a small, uh, mul- a small condensed uh, piece like Bone Alphabet or XY or something very large like Zicluse or Rogashanti. I like the idea of this clinic I know I've asked this of people who do who've done these clinics in the past. Is there a charge that you, you are given by the committee or whoever is deciding on this because it's in this uh, realm? You know, like in terms of the kind of a fundamentals portion, are there strictures? Are there things that they want you to address as part of your presentation? Well, I guess in. What I'm going to try to do in my clinic is find opportunities to have participants interact. Uh, there's a one part, uh, spoiler alert, where you get to improvise on the setup that I'll be using. And by the way, the canvas for this is a piece that uh, my good friend Corey Robinson, who teaches at Midwestern State University in Wichita Falls, Texas, wrote for me called Time Intermittent. And I premiered it on my faculty recital when I was on faculty at the University of Utah. So that'll be the canvas for this. And will be sort of the example piece. So finding opportunities to really interact with the audience so that it's not strictly an academic lecture and such. And because, and there, not that there's anything wrong with that, but there's a time and place for this. And what this is, is basically what I'm trying to do is kind of elevate the educational aspects of multi-percussion instruments, which is something that has kind of become organically a passion of mine. Although I will say that there are books out there like Nick Petrella's book. Uh, Andy Blith has a book called Multitudes that has multiple multi-solos that are written for the same instrument. Brett William Dietz has Reflex, uh, which is a collection of multi-percussion solos that are progressive. It starts from two instruments all the way to seven, eight, nine instruments. So I guess what I what my clinic is is sort of different ways to think about things, but also addressing different learning strengths and such. So if you're more of a visual learner, there is a solution there. If you're more of a, of an aural learner, there's another solution there. I hope that answers your question. You're dealing with, a, uh, as you mentioned in an idea that is not that we're at the mercy of, uh, obviously yeah. what the composer has written, what's available. What are the ways that if someone is starting out, 
and they're and and they're like they're they're doing and you're kind of making the case okay if you're playing like a snare drum and a tenor drum like that's multi-percussion like so you know you kind of can go from like easy to or to, to extremely elaborate but what are the ways that you think about building up somewhat like a a sequence we'll say um because it because it could be an instrument amount but it could also just be one thing's not that hard and one thing's really hard i think the first thing is that you know something that ed sof would always talk about is that in order to mul- in order to master multiple surfaces you need to first master one surface and so one of the things that i talk about in terms of getting comfortable with the setup is taking sticking patterns from stick control that very first page with the single beat combinations and basically arranging it for your setup, not only doing single strokes, but also double strokes and such. I remember when I was working on a Sangha for my second DMA recital at university of North Texas. And that piece has a page and a half and, and two pages of nonstop 16th notes with all these different patterns. And Kevin Voland is not a percussionist, so he didn't really write something that fit on the instrument. And so because of that, I had to use a lot of a lot of double stickings. Another thing that I talk about is the one and one drum and around. Speaking of tenor drums, you know, tenors always talk about playing on one drum, getting comfortable with that, and then mapping it, then mapping it around the drums. And I just feel like that's so important. So in terms of expanding out to other instruments. It's also important to kind of be aware and of what the function of the music is. So if you take something that is like Anvil Chorus, for instance, by David Lang, where you have an ostinato and then you have and then you have a left-hand melody, they are going to function, those instruments are going to function differently. One's going to be one's going to be melodic and one's going to be accompaniment and also factoring in the acoustic properties of that as well. So for instance, a bongo is going to cut a lot more than a tom. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about this yesterday. Zanakis Raban's B has that bongo ostinato and then you have these toms and these bongos that are being played. You have to really, really reduce the sound of the bongos even if it doesn't necessarily reflect that in the dynamics that are written in the piece. Right. And then the other thing too, is that if you have the flip side of that coin is that if you have all these different instruments, even if they all have different acoustic properties, but they function as one single line, like for instance, in Dave Holland's cold press, how you have that digga 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 da, digga 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 da, digga 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 da, which was the bane of my existence in my undergrad. It's a great piece, but oh boy, did I spend a lot of time on that. But just, being, and, you, and you mean not just setting it up, like actually playing it too, right? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you have to make sure that you get the best sound. But not only that, also have the sounds blend together. Yeah. Because dynamics, it's about the output of sounds. I'm not, when I see mezzo forte, it's not a mezzo forte input. It's a mezzo forte output. And so I have to keep that in mind. And there are other factors like the hall, the room that you're going to be in, the practice room is going to have very different acoustics than the concert hall. So I think it's the music also really being fluent in stick control and also some one drum and around, uh, around methods as well. Those are some of the things that I will be suggesting in my clinic. Gotcha. Will there be elements where you're dealing with multiple mallets 
you know, like, like format playing or, or that you have just different implements in the hands? For the purposes of this clinic, the use of four mallets is going to be outside of this because gotcha. the piece that I'm using only requires two mallets. And, but I can speak to it very quickly that the best piece of advice I can have is learn all the different grips because I remember being in a musical pit and having to do a one-handed suspended cymbal roll and I had to, and I had a microsecond to pick up the mallets. So I didn't have time to be like, okay, inside mallet and the fleshy part of the palm and that's in there underneath, you know, and build up the Stevens grip. I said, no, screw it. I'm going to use Burton grip. Or if the mallets were uh, on top of each other in a different way, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to use cross grip. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So being able to learn the different, the different grips. And actually there were, there were times where I was playing not to get on too much of a tangent, but there were times where I was playing Steven's grip in one hand Mm-hmm. because like for a one-handed suspended symbol role, because I felt I got more independence with Steven's grip. And then I was playing two toms, for instance, with my left hand with Burton grip, because it was a lot easier for me to not flam that entrance. So I was using Burton grip in one hand and Steven's grip in the other. And I wasn't struck by lightning. <laughs> nice. <laughs> where do you think we're at in terms of where literature is for multi-percussion? I feel like there is a lot of fantastic repertoire out there from a difficulty standpoint. And I'm of the philosophy that nothing is difficult. It's just time consuming. So, but for the sake of this statement, I'll just say difficult, the, the difficult spectrum. So I feel like there's a lot of fantastic repertoire out there. A lot of it is really difficult. You take a look at Rabanz, Rogashanti, Safa, Ziklus, King of Denmark. It's a lot of very involved instruments. And then you also have on the opposite end of that, when even some things like very beginning multi-percussion etudes, sometimes they're pretty well written. And other times they kind of give you what I like to call the Barney the Dinosaur treatment, where it's like this very simple rhythms, but they kind of insult your intelligence at the same time it's just like <laughs> okay hit the drum right there and then it was up there and stuff like that so i feel like i feel like there are solid foundations on on both on both ends of the spectrum and i think that middle area of having good uh, balancing good quality repertoire but of course this is my own opinion what i perceive as good quality repertoire yeah. with a approach an approachable difficulty level. That's why I really, really love Brett William Dietz's book Reflex, because he's been able to make all these solos and have a progression through them. And as a matter of fact, that's actually part of my curriculum at UNC, where as part of their sophomore barrier, they have to play one of those solos out of Brett's book. Whether instrumentation and I'd be specific about if there are instruments that are not available or you have to come kind of close. How how do you, what are the ways that you tackle that? If you have to, maybe you don't have to, but. Sure. So are you talking about if there's, if there's an instrument that is specifically written for it and you just don't have access to that? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, there are certain substitutes, for instance, I think in, Dave Hollanden's cold press. I'll just use that as an example. I think he calls for woodblocks in the score, and I could be wrong about this, but I'll just use. I'll just let's just say for the sake of argument that it calls for a woodblock. But in order for all of the stuff to fit easily together, 
you want to put everything on an LP everything rack, for instance. Yeah, it yeah. might be a little bit more easier to use a jam block so you can kind of emulate that sound. Things like earth plates, there might be there are some substitutions for that. I think that if you do, in my personal opinion, if you do your due diligence to find the right kind of instrument, and fortunately with a with a a, a bulk of these solos, there is some openness to interpretation. So right. you know, Safa calls for you know skin sounds, metal sounds, and wood sounds. I mean, you take a look at something like, and also take a look at something like Raban's B, where the score right. says wood blocks, and every a lot of people use those purple heart heart uh, wooden flats and they're more flat than they are blocked it's about coming up with a palette of instruments that fit well together and again that largely depends depends on the music the way that rabond is written a lot is in these sections yes you have this ostinatos and melody and accompaniment but then there are also sections where they are very much need to function together so you need to make sure that there is no dissonance for lack of a better word amongst the different instruments even though they are pretty much unpitched i'm just uh, extremely excited and extremely honored to be sharing that to be sharing this idea with people this is something that i've helped and you know pete you were there at ncpp when you saw the beginnings of this presentation uh at texas tech when lisa was hosting us there and so just being able to think about it and to be able to expand upon it because one of the things that I'm passionate about as a teacher is finding different ways to do the same thing Mm -hmm. because that's one of the things we need to do as educators. If I only talk about the things that work for people with one set of learning strengths and not expand into the ones that are of the other learning strengths, then, you know, then that means that I'm not doing my job. And so being able to really brainstorm about this and think, okay, if somebody's more of a visual learner, what could what could benefit them? What have I seen benefit students and so forth and so on? So I'm really excited. I'm really honored to be sharing this clinic. And I'm extremely grateful to the Progressive Arts Society, to Oliver Molina and the PAS Education Committee and and the entire executive committee for this great honor. You have a new job from the last time we talked two years ago. What's uh, Yes, I do. What's been going on with you? So... I am now living in the wonderful state of Colorado, specifically the city of Greeley, and I am now assistant professor of percussion and director of percussion studies at the University of Northern Colorado. And I'm extremely honored to be at this job at the expense of sounding a little bit religious. I do believe that this job is a gift from God. And in addition to that, it's just I when I did my on-campus visit, I absolutely fell in love with the place, fell in love with the faculty. The students are extremely hardworking. We just did our percussion ensemble concert this past Monday, and this would be because I know it might take a little bit of time to put this all together. Our percussion ensemble concert was on October 30th, so the day before Halloween, the eve of All Hallows Eve. And the students did so phenomenally well, and I'm just so proud of them. What particularly attracted you to seek this job out and then eventually win it? I think the thing that really attracted me to the position was the faculty and how passionate they are. They really have a students first approach. Not to say that my previous institution didn't have that. They very much had a students first approach. And part of the reason that I applied for it was because my 
previous job was also, I was also interviewing for that position too on a visiting contract. And if anybody has ever been in that position, you sometimes have to hedge your bets and apply for other positions just in the event that you're not the person. And I had firsthand experience of that when I was uh, not hired at Tyler. And it sounds like I'm airing dirty laundry. I'm not, I'm just simply listing circumstances. Sure. And I interacting with the students, interacting with the faculty and just how welcome they made me feel. And, and then when I was offered the position, the job was the job, the job offer was too good to ignore. And although I do miss and are, am missing university of Texas Permian basin, I kind of considered myself, I was going to someplace. I wasn't leaving someplace. So, and after discussing it with my family, I had to take the job and I am very grateful that I did. And I, I'm really, I know I said I was living my best life at UTPB, but now I'm feel like I'm even more so now living my best life at UNC. And it, and it might sound like I'm bad mouthing UTPB. And I want to say for the record that I'm most definitely not. No, I, I understand. I understand. Um, what, what's it like, you know, it's, uh, I, there's a, it, I feel like I, I would love to hear more about how, what what it's like to apply for a job and go out knowing that you, at least currently, you have another job. Like, like what's the? I I always feel like that's a. There's like a little bit of, like a. I could just go for this. Mm-hmm. Right? Did Did it feel like that when you when you're like this? I, like let's just let's go. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of that going into it. I applied for the position and I did my Zoom interview and a lot of it was the principle of it, of finishing what I started. And I did my research on the institution and had a general idea of where, of where it was and what they were doing. And they, I got the email. This is actually kind of a funny story. I got the email at a West Texas symphony rehearsal that I was a finalist and I had, I was doing the musical bright star at the time. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Which is the musical that was written by, and composed by Steve Martin, the comedian and Juan Hernandez, who was the musical direct musical director of it. I told him, look, don't say anything, but I'm a finalist for this position in order for me to fly up to Colorado. I'm going to need to miss this one rehearsal can I do that? And he was extremely accommodating. He said, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Go, go fly. And then when I came back from Colorado, I got into my car, fed to the hall, went into the pit and, and immediately resumed a musical rehearsal. So, uh, but to go back to your original point, it was a lot of, I just wanted to finish. I wanted to take it as far as I could go to see where, where that would happen because sure. I knew Statistics show that even if you're a finalist for a position, you can leave it all on the leave it all on the field, metaphorically speaking, and still not get the position. And so I said that I wanted to see where this ended. And I was gonna do everything I could because that's just kind of in my nature. I don't I try my best to not half ass things. Sure, yeah, yeah. So so I 
said, yeah, I'm going to come do on-campus interview, meet with everybody, meet with the students, teach lessons, do the interview recital. And, and I ended up getting the job and I ended up accepting it. And, um, you know, that was, that was a very interesting couple of weeks to say the least. Yeah. Do you know, I'm curious, do do you know if you were the, the last, if you were the last person or were there, uh, you know, in terms of like how, if there were other people that were finalists, if you, where you were in the order? I do not know that. And I would never ask that. And, (laughs) and I said to myself that I would never ask, I would never pull a member of the search committee into my office and say, Hey, so so where was I? Where was I? You know, just between the two of us. Oh I'm no, not no, I, that. I, yeah, no, I didn't uh, mean. I know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, to, to answer to answer your question, I don't know, and frankly, yeah. I didn't. I didn't want to know. I didn't. Tr- I didn't want to focus on that because sure. I could only control what I do, mm-hmm. and I, if they wanted somebody else, that was their decision, and sure. if they picked somebody that they thought was a better fit for it, then they would be doing me a favor because they would think that I would not be the best fit for that. So, and I remember when we last chatted on your podcast, I mentioned that you think it's stressful not having a job. Imagine having a job that you're not qualified for, that you're not a good fit for, or that you hate. I just said, look, I'm just going to only focus on what I do. I can't control what other people do. I mean, at the time of this recording, UIL state marching contests in Texas have just wrapped up Mm -hmm. and everybody is just so proud of their season and some bands made finals and some didn't, but they have such an amazing and inspiring mindset that they gave their best performance right in the Alamo dome in San Antonio. And that was, that was what they had hoped for. And if they ended up winning great, if they ended up making finals great, if they ended up scoring, you know, 30th or whatever, or what have you, they were still, they were still okay with that because they knew that they did everything that they could with the circumstances and information that they had at the time. They can't control what the other bands do, right? Nor should they, they can't control. They can't control what, what the other high school bands are doing in terms of the resources that they have, or in terms of the amount of, of luck that was on their side or the amount of, preparation and such. Yeah. You know, so, so that's kind of the mindset that I went into that and I, and I'm at peace with knowing what I know and knowing what I know. I'm at peace with that. Awesome. What, when you were in the finals in particular, you know, you get to that stage, were there anything that you, because of your past experience, and in the professional teaching realm, was there anything that you were, you realized you were like, I know this now. So I'm going to ask about blank, which I would never have asked when I was first out. Cause I just didn't know. Sure. I think uh, some of the questions that I asked was uh, having to do with recruitment because mm-hmm. post COVID enrollment is 33% on average down amongst universities all over the country. Yeah. And so I asked, what are your recruit, what's your recruitment approach? Do you have any current pipelines from certain high schools, certain areas that you're trying to expand 
upon. And one of the things that they mentioned is that University of Northern Colorado is part of what we call WUI, which is the Western Undergraduate Exchange. So mm. students that are residents of states and or territories like California, Oregon, Washington State, Utah, Wyoming, Hawaii, Guam, mm-hmm. they can qualify for reduced tuition. It's yeah. which is for a tuition rate that's pretty much in between in-state tuition in Colorado and out of state. And and so I that I've really focused a lot on recruitment. I also asked what resources are available if a student comes to me and they are in crisis or they are stressing out about things. Um, other things that I asked was, what do you feel like your students struggle with the most? What, you know, so it's kind of those, it's kind of those questions where, yeah, I know it's because I've done this for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Those are questions that I, that I can ask, uh, and no, and no to ask, you know, people say, well, what is the biggest piece of advice you can give to an interviewee? And the ideal answer to that is have the experience to back up your answers. So then you don't have to speak in hypotheticals, but of course you have to get that experience before you get that, but get to that point. But that was, I asked a lot of questions about, about recruitment. And another thing that I did was I really talked about how I could, I kind of built upon that answer by saying, Oh, you recruit from you, you try to recruit from Utah. I do have some connections there, you know, in the past and things and things like, things like that. Um, I also talking about curriculum as well, because mm-hmm. they asked me, what is my curriculum like? And I listed th- and I use things like, and I wasn't putting, I wasn't putting one off on people, but this is literally how I think about what the learning objectives are for each semester what are the performance, what are the performance objectives, learning outcomes? They asked me questions about what are potential dissertation topics that you would help a student with, because we do have a a doctoral program here at the UNC. For that question, I had to really think about that, but then I started thinking, oh, a comparative, a comparative analysis and performance practice between con variations and very variations, a curriculum base for a middle school percussion, uh, percussion group in the, in the, in the state of Colorado, uh, uh, percussion ensemble in the state of Colorado, yeah. something that's more historical and so forth and so on. So, you know, from one doctoral, from one person that has a doctorate to another, you know, that you can't just say, oh, I want to write about the history of the timpani. You have to be a little bit more specific than that. And so having the experience of writing a dissertation and knowing what things are like IRB approval and what a defense is and what a lecture is, those things were extremely, uh, extremely important. And I felt, um, helped prepare me to answer those questions. The one that actually stood out was you talking about, uh, dealing with students in crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially, especially now, especially in today's, in today's climate, especially when there's been a lot of, of, uh, negative mental health as the, in the aftermath of the pandemic with things were locked down you have to be aware of what your not only the counseling resources and how to get a hold of a counseling center. I mean, not that you would make the call yourself, but how a student could, uh, could go get counseling sessions, but also what your role is as the teacher. Yeah. Your role there is to teach music. You are not a therapist. 
Right. I mean, we, we, as music teachers, we see our students at our, at their best. We see our students at their worst, but you have to realize that there is a line. You are not a therapist. You are not a trained psych psychiatrist or a trained psychologist. And so, so the second that, so the second that, that it crosses into that, you have to say, we have free confidential counseling sessions and, and things like that. And that's just simply because, you know, if you are not trained in that, you run the risk of making things worse. Right. Tell what's it been like to be in Colorado? Just the state, just being around the state so far. There's these things called mountains here. There are these very tall, very tall mountains and Greeley is east of the Rocky Mountains. So we're not really in the mountains, but we do have an elevation of about, I think it's about 5,000 feet here. Mm -hmm. And so there was, uh, and I'm still getting a little bit used to the altitude air mm. and whatnot, but the ish, everything is just so scenic out here. And I could look out my window and if I move to my front porch, I can see the very, very top of the mountains, which is just absolutely, absolutely beautiful. And they have snow on them a little bit. We had some snow this past weekend. That's mm. the other thing too, is that getting used to getting used to snow. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I mean, I experienced snow when I was in Virginia, but it had it's, been a good long while since I experienced like legit snow. Right. And of course, West Tech. Of course, I found out that West Texas got us got some type of winter weather around the same time as well. But yeah. it's been it's been really uh, it's been really great. There are trees around, you know, things that I did not really experience in West Texas that uh, you know, like the color green. Yeah, of course. Well. Right. Yeah. Everything's brown, right? In Texas. Yeah. Especially in West Texas, it's very windy. And so because of that, there's a lot, there's a lot of dust, but I did have a good time in West Texas and I want to be. Yeah. Clear yeah. Of course. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there weren't mountains so, or green. <laughs> or no, 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 there, there weren't. And, you know, growing up in Virginia within driving distance of the Blue Ridge mountains, yeah, those mountains are kind of amateur mountains yes, right, to, of course. to the rocky mountains <laughs> mountains we'll put the mountains in quotes here <laughs> well and the other the other interesting too and this is very random is that when you say disney you oh, have disneyland there yeah well yes disneyland i always like to say i i say this to my i say this to my students and they and they laugh which is that if you remember during civil war history there was the mason dixon line which was mm -hmm. which separated the northern states from the southern states Right. Well, there is kind of a pseudo similar Mason Dixon line just just around the Rocky Mountains where everything west of that, when you say Disney, they mean Anaheim and everything mm -hmm. east of that is Orlando. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say, oh, I'm going to Disney. And they said, oh, the one in California. And I say, no, yeah, there is one in California, isn't there? No, I meant I meant Orlando. So. Right. <laughs> well, you know, it's not that different from um, it's really funny when because you keep saying UNC. And I spent 10 years in North Carolina and I'm like, well, it's interesting. You keep saying it's like the Tar Heels, like, no, not Chapel Hill. It's how, do you, how do you think for you? Yeah. How do you, th how do you think Google likes that? Every time I say UNC, <laughs> I say, no, I have to. So what I have to say is, uh, and our, our website domain is unco.edu. So it's not unc.edu, but we say, mm. we say, we say UNC a lot yeah. because we, but UNCO is what is, is the, um, is the handle for my email. And 
it's also the it's also the title of our Facebook page, UNCO Percussion, as well. While you've been there, and I, I know it hasn't been because this is you, this is your first semester there, right? It, is the area close to things in terms of outside, uh, you know, percussion activities that are available mm-hmm. to you? Yeah, there. Greeley is about an hour north of Denver, so or hour hour and a half north of Denver. It's it's more of it's more like just shy of an hour north of Denver International Airport, which is, and the, the airport itself is technically in Denver, but it's a lot closer to Commerce City. Oh, okay. So there are a bunch of different orchestras around. I got a chance to play with the Greeley Philharmonic, which is the local symphony, which is it's a great sounding symphony. Lowell Graham, who I believe was part of the National Band Association for many, many years. And he was the air, he was a conductor in the Air Force Band uh, and actually, what was actually kind of funny is that he preceded Dennis Leindecker, who was my orchestra conductor at George Mason University for my junior and senior year. Because before before Denny came to Mason, he was the conductor for the United States Air Force Band in Washington, D.C. But Lowell Graham is the music director for the Greeley Philharmonic. Uh, they also have there are also symphonies around in the area. There's Boulder Philharmonic, Boulder Symphony. <clears throat> uh, Fort Collins Symphony. A number of players in the area will also travel up into Wyoming to play with the Cheyenne Symphony. Mm. So where Greeley is, we are we're pretty close to the Wyoming border. So drive about an hour north, and you're in Wyoming. So there are so there are uh, playing opportunities. And what's actually cool is that when I whenever I sub with Greeley Philharmonic, uh, Gray Barrier, who had yep. been teaching at University of Northern Colorado for many years. He's the principal timpanist. And so anytime, so every time that our paths cross, we always sit down and, and chat about a whole bunch of, a bunch of stuff. You know, he's, he's great. I, I love gray. What, what's driving been like there? Driving is, uh, driving has been good. Uh, my commute's about 10 to 15 minutes, depending on traffic. Mm-hmm. Some people, some people commute from Fort Collins, which is a little bit farther away, but I, I live in Greeley and it's, I had north on 35th Avenue and then head east on 16th Street and then turn right onto 10th Avenue. And I'm right there at Fraser Hall, which is our main music building. And so so the commute's really good. And it was kind of important to me because I I put in my hours commuting when I was teaching at University of Texas at Tyler, going going back and forth between Forney and and Tyler and commuting, you know, sometimes 600 miles a week, which was not fun. <laughs> I was grateful for the opportunity, but the driving was not fun. And, you know, and Corey Robinson actually had that gig before me and he would commute from Denton. And I'm just like, you are insane. Um, you know, commuting all the way from Denton, have to go all the way through Dallas and then all the way to Tyler. But the driving, driving has been pretty good. Um, don't really have any, any complaints about that. I was uh, very lucky to find a very nice townhouse, which is where I'm at right now. And, yeah. in a great location. It's uh, north of a bunch of shops and a bunch of restaurants. Like I could walk, I could walk out my door and then walk to Jersey Mike's and Dairy Queen. There's also a Fuzzies there and there's a Target and a, and a, and a Best Buy. Best Buy is kind of my therapeutic sco- store. So if I just need to just unwind, I'll just walk through a Best Buy and such. And it's just like all, seeing all the cables and all the video games and it's kind of like my thing. So yeah. We'll do kind of a reduced version of the the random ask questions. 
segment to close. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I'm so glad we're back with the random ass questions. Uh, I really <laughs> love. I really love random ass questions. That, that's my favorite part of your episodes, man. <laughs> Thanks. There have been any um, TV shows lately that you've been binging or rewatching in the last couple of years that caught your attention. One was there was actually two. Mm-hmm. One was that uh, my parents and I have been uh, rewatching his undercover boss. Oh yeah, yeah. Because you know we we're we're kind of suckers for the uh, for the very uh, fluffy you know at the end when they reveal that they're the CEO and they say oh we're going to give you oh you have fifty thousand dollars in medical bills we're going to pay all that off and stuff like that you know we just we just love what we love watching that as well. Mm-hmm. We've been watching Undercover Boss and I think we've been watching that on. Uh, on Paramount Plus because it's uh, it's with a Paramount Plus subscription in because mm. now Paramount Plus and has merged with Amazon so Amazon is kind of the outlet for Paramount Plus so rather than Paramount Plus having its own dedicated app so yeah. we just watch it on watch it on uh, Prime Video. I've also been watching rewatching House. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, for first couple of seasons, uh, I don't, I have to like watching in mediation because after a while it starts affecting your attitude and your outlook on life and everything. <laughs> no, it, it really, it really does because how, because Gregory house is brilliant, but he's a miserable, miserable human being. So yeah. and Hugh Laurie, Hugh Laurie did such a great job with that character. My favorite arc is actually in the first season when uh, Edward Vogler, who became chair of the board and the CEO of the hospital, uh, he was played by Chi McBride, who was in Boston Public for a number of years. Mm, yeah. uh, he and that that's my favorite arc out of out of all that, and then also the Tritter arc as well with uh, Detective Tritter, as well. Um, and then outside of that, I've actually just been watching a lot of NFL football because I'm on a fantasy I'm in a fantasy league right now. Oh and yeah, of course. I've realized that I really really like fantasy football. <laughs> yeah. So you know. <laughs> So I might have to update my outlook on the Washington Commanders since I talked about them last time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because this is hot off the presses of Montez Sweat and Chase Young being released or or being traded. But yeah, I think I don't to tell you the truth. I don't really care if we lose the rest of the season Mm -hmm. because we have already won the Super Bowl in my mind because we got rid of Dan Snyder. Yeah, that's true. Yes, that is a major accomplishment. And Josh, Josh Harris actually has experience running running sports organizations he was mm. a partial stake owner in the in the steelers i think and now he's so it's him it's magic johnson it's a couple other people so yeah. and you know now they're I, ron rivera is going to get fired at the end of the at the end of the season i don't think that i'm not sure if eric b is going to get promoted to head coach i don't think he's quite ready because he was, he was great at, at the chiefs, but Andy yeah. Reid was calling all the plays and everything. So he's only had uh, a little bit of time as a offensive coordinator. He's done great stuff with Sam Howell. I think Sam Howell is a, is a very great quarterback. We just mm-hmm. need to get an offensive line to protect him. Yeah. He's going to, he might break the record for getting sacked in a season. Yeah. When it's that bad, it's a combination of the players, but also a lot of it is the, is the coaching. Well, I I won't say that. I felt like, because they would always say that the biggest strength of that, of that team is the deep is the defense. And Jack Del Rio had moments of brilliance, but now the, the, the defense has just gone 
downhill. And so, although it's sad to see Montez Sweat and Chase Young go, if it means that we can build up the off, excuse me, build up an offense, then, you know, that's worth it. You know, they say that uh, the best offense is a good defense or the best defense is a good offense. Well, the truth is, is that the best offense is a good offense and the best defense is a good defense. So yes, this is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, just so really just, uh, watching a lot of, watching a lot of football. Uh, you know, I, I caught myself saying Broncos country, let's ride a couple times. So because I'm in the, I mean, it's okay. I mean, there are, they're not, in your, they're not in your team's conference. So it's okay. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's fine. And if I can stomach living in Cowboys country for a number of years, I can stomach <laughs> anything. So, but I, uh, but I, I will say this though, that I do have Tony, Tony Pollard on my fantasy team. Uh-huh. And, and although like they say, Oh, you have to hate Dallas because you're a Washington fan. I hate the Eagles more than I hate <laughs> Dallas. Right. I, I really, I, you know, I just, Although I've been constantly sending trade proposals to try and get AJ Brown and or Devonte Smith, but that has not <laughs> produced any fruit so far. But we shall see. <laughs> oh, that that's that's great. Well, you know, yeah. here here's what's interesting. I think about um, about what what's a, kind of an interesting corollary on the um, Eric Bieniemy situation is that I think what we're seeing also is that uh, Kansas City's offense. Okay, they don't have any. They don't have any pass catchers, but not mm. as good without him. Actually, he was he he did quite a lot. Um, even if it may have been because whoever's replaced him was was at the um, was a former Bears coach Nagy, right? Matt Nagy, Matt yeah. Matt Nagy, yeah, yeah. I don't know that he's very good. <laughs> I don't know. I my favorite Matt Nagy moment was after Cody Parkey did the double doink, and oh, right. his yeah. face was just so like aghast and everything gosh that i i felt bad i felt bad for the bears that day that was that was the worst thing ever and i mean i will say that eric Bieniemy is he's he's definitely the best one of the best offensive coordinators we've had in a long time yeah i'm just i just need a little bit more time for me personally to see if he's ready to be that head coach and i'm just not quite sure yet. And maybe, maybe a couple of seasons. Um, if I had to put my money somewhere, I think that it, you know, after Ron Rivera is let go, I think that there is a chance that maybe they, the commanders might try to get Bill Belichick. That would be interesting. Belichick is, Belichick is kind of imploding a little bit. And I think that although Belichick is a great coach but the Patriots were great, I think we now realize it was 60% Tom Brady and 40% Bill Belichick. So uh, yeah. Rather than oh, it was all Bill Belichick, or it was all Tom, all Tom Brady. But you know the Patriots, the Patriots have some have some decent players. Uh, Kenneth Warren is good, although he's injured right now. Ramondre Stevenson was great. He really helped out my fantasy team in the last season. But yeah, you know, oh well. So <laughs> we'll, we'll just we'll just see what happens. But I have a lot more confidence in who Josh Harris will would pick than I would with who Dan Snyder would pick. Where you were, you thought. Oh my gosh, we might actually get rid of Dan Snyder before it actually happened. Or was it like it actually was the moment when he was no longer there that you're like, it's happened? I think it was when I think it was the moment when he hired Bank of America to look into selling it. Mm. Because we all because there was a bunch of rumors going around that he had dirt on the other NFL owners and right? Roger Goodell. Yes. And that and that and that was yeah. the only reason that he was still there. Yeah. But 
I think it was then and also when he was getting subpoenaed and there was a story about how they had to follow him all the way to the Mediterranean Sea to serve him a subpoena and he would just he would just not touch it. And also then that way he wasn't technically from a legal standpoint served. There was increasing pressure from from Congress and also there was a the, the it was a, it was a the, the Washington was becoming a depreciation depreciating asset. I mean, FedEx yeah. Field is is an abomination, and it's it just got to the point where I think that when he when he hired Bank of America to look into how to sell the team and and take bids for it, yeah. that's when I started holding my breath, thinking, oh, this could actually happen, and it did. So and. Good riddance, Mr. Snyder. I mean, just think of all the how long you had felt like. Yeah. <laughs> the breathing. Well, everything everything was everything was a band-aid, you know, and, yeah. and sort of coping coping mechanisms. You know, everything from everything from getting uh Adrian Peterson to drafting RG3 to mm-hmm. Kirk Cous- to Kirk Cousins and then Alex Smith. Uh right, yeah. You know, and I will say that Kirk Cousins and is horrible what happened to him, how he tore his ACL and everything. And that's just yeah. shame because he is, he is a solid quarterback and, uh, and Alex Smith, I mean, dude, what that guy went through after basically being this being Joe Theismund, I guess, yeah. you know, having yeah. that, having that, which happened like apparently on the day, like the exact day, like a certain number, of, a certain number of years ago, it was like the same calendar day as when Joe Theismann broke his leg. And, and see, if you watch his Ted talk and he has, they have these very graphic pictures of, of his, of his leg and what he went through and everything. And, and he came back and he played and that's just, that's just truly, that's just truly remarkable. And so there were some moments where we felt good about Washington. Yeah. But now we feel like the sky's the limit now. Mm The documentary they did, I think it was E60 did did a documentary mm-hmm. on Alex Smith, and that was the first time I had seen those those photos of how close he came to dying, basically. Alex yeah, Smith did. and it it is yeah. unreal, like his leg and what what he was going through. Oh yeah, because like it was starting because he was getting sepsis, you know, and blood infections, yeah. and which caused his fever his fever to go up, and they. Yeah, it was, and there was at one point they were talking about amputation and everything. And I remember, I remember watching the YouTube video. I didn't get a chance to see the game live because I, I uh, on TV because um, I was in I, when I was living in Odessa. The TV provider said because of the COVID nineteen pandemic, we're not installing TV service. We'll install internet service, but we won't install TV service. And I don't. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. But anyway. <laughs> But watching, because he went out onto the field, and then they showed his family in the stands, and they were all just holding their breath and everything. And then he snapped, and he threw the ball to McKissick, and then McKissick got a couple got a couple yards and everything. And that was just truly that that was a truly truly special moment that he came back from that. Yeah. So I love I love Alex Smith. He's he and he was he was a really he wasn't the flashy like he wasn't a Patrick Mahomes or a Josh no. Allen, but he. He introduced a lot of stability to that team. So, and I felt like 
a lot of the players rallied around him, like your Chase Youngs. I mean, when he was with Washington, uh, your Terry McLaurin's, your Curtis Samuels. And then, and then after he decided to retire, you know, that was, that was a sad day, but I understood it. And then we got Taylor Heineke and Taylor Heineke. I think, uh, I can't, I can't remember who it was, but they said like, he's got that dog in him, you know, and he's a mm-hmm. fighter. Yeah. yeah. So, and I, and you know, so it was, and I was also really sad when Taylor Heineke left, but now he's starting for Atlanta because Josh Dobbs went to Minnesota. So, yeah, I always felt like I would have liked the jets to have had Alex Smith for a bit, just cause again, just solid, like, he, mm-hmm. Like you know, you know what you're getting out of him. You're probably not getting a, you're probably not getting a Super Bowl, but you're like, we'll we'll like either be in the playoffs or we'll be competitive. You know, competence. It's nice to have some. Competence. Yeah, he is a he's kind of like a house flipper quarterback. So he'll get the house back on the foundation <laughs> the house, to get like to that. get ready for. The, well, I mean, because you know, Patrick Mahomes was, was talking about how Alex Smith is part of the reason that Patrick Mahomes is the quarterback that he is today. And Patrick mm-hmm. Mahomes is one of, if not the greatest quarterbacks still playing right now. So, you know, he's been a, he's been an excellent catalyst for whomever he's interacted with. Yeah. What have you discovered food wise so far in Colorado? One of the great things at UNC is that we are just down the street from a bunch of really cool restaurants that have uh there's a chipotle down the street there's also a philly cheesesteak place uh janice dick and sheets who is uh who is uh, on the faculty and she uh teaches some music classes and and she's a she's a great friend of mine uh she and i went to this place called uh, sexy sammy's which is a chicken which is a chicken place of course and it's kind of like it's kind of like chick-fil-a but a little bit more i don't want to insult anybody but a little bit more upscale so kind okay. of like, so it's it's like uh, if you can imagine like high end Chick Fil A mm-hmm. food, and that's kind of what Sexy Sammy's is, and it's really good too. So, and I started getting a little bit more Chipotle than I thought I would because I was always one of those people because because it used to be for the longest time Chipotle was the thing was the thing that hipsters would get, and then that became popular. So then all of a right. sudden I was just like, oh, I'm not gonna. I don't consider myself a hipster, but I just thought oh, I don't really see the appeal of Chipotle, and then all of a sudden. Sure started getting their steak burritos and I'm just thinking, Oh, I now see it now. Yeah. It's like, it's like the light just went off in my head. So, um, with, there are a lot of chain restaurants out here, but, um, yeah. I've been, uh, and there's also some really good, uh, really good, uh, Mexican, uh, food places here as well that I've been, uh, dabbling in a little bit. Oh, even as, I mean, not as good as Texas, I would assume. Right. It's a little bit different. It's yeah. a little bit different, um, but uh, they could do worse. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, they they could they could they could do worse. And you know, I got really spoiled, and I got really spoiled in Texas uh, with Tex-Mex and everything like that. But there's a fuzzies here, so you know, there's there's that. There's also some other uh, other places as well. Uh, Christian Kuhlman, who is the drumline instructor at UNC, he and I did a gig together at. Uh, for Larimer Corral, which is a professional choir in the area, um, and yeah. we went to this because uh, he did he did an he did his uh, master's at Colorado State University, and the gig was in, was at the Performing Arts Center for uh, CSU, and he took me to this uh, Mexican restaurant that um, that he really liked, and they make really 
great food there as well. Mm. So it's kind of a, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but it's like one half Mexican restaurant and the other half is like a Mexican grocery store. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Those are great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they really they really are, and they they had really great tacos, really great burritos, and I it was mm, so so good. And plus, also getting to support a small business and everything is always good whenever the opportunity presents itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In Kansas City, Kansas, there's like basically a street that has there's like a place called like Pueblo San Antonio or something like that. But there's just okay. just a string of of the restaurant grocery store style Mexican food. And the, the food is outstanding. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Tex- and my dad is a big fan of, of, um, of Tex-Mex as well. He really likes uh, Mexican food in, in Virginia, there's this chain of restaurants called Anita's. And so mm. we, whenever, sometimes when on Fridays, uh, we would, get carry out food and I would get like a filet of fish sandwich from McDonald's. My dad would get a uh, chimichanga dinner and a Mexican pizza from Anita's. And my mom would get something from like chicken out or, yeah. or something, which was a, uh, a, a chicken uh, gourmet place and, mm. and such. And then every time that my parents would come visit me, my dad is like, let's go to Rosa's when, and that was a very, that's a very popular uh, chain in West Texas of mm. uh, Tex-Mex and, and such. And so, Yeah. It's so just discovering like they're kind of organically just these different restaurants in the area is kind of what I've been kind of what I've been doing, but you know, it's just, it can be difficult to do just finding the time for it, especially when you're trying to get acclimated to a new gig and just being sure that you are the best teacher that you can be for your students, which is always in the forefront of my mind. Impressive, incredible movies or books you've encountered the last couple of years. I'll say maybe video games as well. Cause like, oh, sure, yeah. Uh, right. yeah. yeah. Cause I'm, I'm currently working my way through cyberpunk 2077, which has, uh, Keanu Reeves in it. He's, uh, one of the main, one of the main characters in that. And, and so he's, um, that's what I've been kind of playing a little bit. Um, you know, I, I kind of have been working long hours lately just between getting ready for the basic presentation as well as, as well as gigs and, uh, Bantober is finally finished, even though that doesn't really, <laughs> right. uh, uh, well, even though I don't have any marching band duties or any band duties, but the, um, but it's always kind of funny how my October gets busy as well during Bantober and whatnot. So, um, so I've been playing through cyberpunk 2077. Um, I also over the summer, I, uh, saw the John wick, the fourth John wick movie. And I, oh, really yeah, the I haven't seen it. Yeah. Is it good? Oh, it's so good. It's so good. That's it might be one of the very few movie franchises where every single movie is like top notch. Yeah. It was so good. Um, I saw that and I also saw the latest Mission Impossible movie, which was really good as that well. That was really good. Not to go on too much of a tangent, but like the first Mission Impossible movie was very much more of a spy thriller than an action right. movie. So you really had to pay attention to the to the dialogue and whatnot and then mission impossible 2 they had john woo coming into uh to direct and he's a fantastic director but it's definitely leaned a lot more on the uh the uh action points of it with a plot that was very much a simple plot Mm -hmm. and then they sort of found their stride from mission impossible 3 onward and so that's another franchise where i just really like every single movie in that so it's that and John Wick. And so those are the, 
two recent movies that I saw that I thought, oh, this is just so, so fantastic. Yeah. No, that, that's awesome. Those are they, and I agree. They're both kind of, um, you, you're you're kind of like impressed that you're still. This part of you is like, why am I doing this again? And then you you're like, oh, because it's good. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you'd think that Mission Impossible would get old, but it's it of hasn't. course, yeah. It's, it's really it's really gotten good, and and they are able to have the plot be just as authentic as the, yeah. as the stunts and everything, because some, because some, uh, thing, some movies are ruled by the stunts. They're ruled by the, by the action sequences. John, the John Wick movies do that a little bit, but you kind of go into that expecting that to be the case. I yeah. mean, you haven't seen, you haven't seen it, but the, uh, seen the fourth John Wick movie, but the scene with the shotgun and the dra- with the dragon's breath ammunition, is just absolutely like so well done from a cinematography uh, standpoint, you know, it's it was one of those done in one take type things like mm-hmm. that. I first saw it's actually kind of interesting because I first saw that happen in the first or second episode of the Daredevil series when it was oh. on Netflix. Yeah, so so that kind of that kind of started the trend, you know. So where we kind of migrated from the rapid nauseating changes of scenes that we would see in the Bourne, in the Jason Bourne movies, and now. Now it's all about, okay, how can we get this in one take? And the fact that, and there was a, the, in the, in the club, the club shootout scene, apparently in the first John Wick movie, he did all that with like a hundred plus degree fever. Cause he had the flu during that time. So <laughs> that's, 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 that's commitment right there. You know, so, so you know how they do the, uh, um, they're just like us. It's like they, you know, like the celebrities, they're just mm-hmm. like us. And then you're like, no, some of them aren't, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. But, but Keanu Reeves is very down to earth. You see him yeah. interact with, interact with fans. And there was that whole story where he was stranded with a bunch of, a bunch of passengers because the flight got canceled. And so he paid for a bus to, uh, to transport everybody, including himself to a destination, to a destination, to their destination. And, he would say, "Oh, we're pat." He would get on the microphone and be like, "Oh, we're passing this town. This town is known for such and such and stuff like that." So, and there've been, you read the YouTube comments of, and uh, of interviews with Keanu Reeves, and they say, "Oh, yeah, I came across Keanu Reeves, and when I was in California, he was getting ready to ride his motorcycle, and and we said, have a good ride.'" And he'd be like, "Oh, thanks, appreciate it." That's my Keanu Reeves impression. Impression. Wow. So. <laughs> To, to so. be fair, your Barney the dinosaur was was better. Just so you're. Oh right. yeah, well thanks. Well, I'm just going to chalk it up to the fact that I'm wearing my my AirPods right now, so the sound might not be like the authentic because I don't really quite have the sound set up right here. So we'll just chalk it up to that. Okay. To, uh Technical lack of technical resources as yes. to why my impressions are so uh, less than adequate. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Nice. All right. I, I was I've been my apologies. I, I was trying to find my old listing of questions and because I, I was like, you like the question. So I'm going to give you some of the deep, deep cuts here. OK, if you're ready, I'm ready. A couple deep cuts. OK, what is your favorite saying as an administrator? Since we have administrative responsibilities as teachers, that's a, t- like that's an email a tough response one. you send oh. to something or. You know, like I always think of the uh, let me let me get right on that for you. You know, like one of those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can just talk about something that I try to do because I'm so worried that my emails will come across as cold. 
So I'll always say, I'll always put an exclamation point at the end of thanks. Mm, yes, and, that's good. <laughs> you know, well, well, yeah, it's because, you know, because I, I've, I've been on the receiving end of emails and this is not a, a knock against anybody that does that, but where it's thanks followed by a comma, I'm just thinking, this person's going to kill me, you know? And so, you know, because, because, yeah. and so, and there's, there was actually a me, I saw this meme a number of years ago where it says, you know, this is me trying to make sure that my email doesn't sound cold. So I put an exclamation point next to, next to things. And I, I try to include enthusiasm in my emails because it's so, so easy to misread the tone in, yes. in messages and emails and such. So I tried, I try my best to, to not do that. So I don't really have a, fa- a saying that I use, but I do have a saying that, uh, but I do have a way of where I, I try my best to not make my emails sound cold when I'm yeah. not trying to sound cold myself. Right. No, that's, that's a good, that's a good hack. And I, I definitely use that as well. Thanks. Yeah. No, it really, it really has to, because there, because I mean, so much, so much disagreements and so much negative drama and conflict are arise, arise from misunderstandings. Right. And, you know, or people jump into the wrong conclusions. And so I try to avoid that whenever I can. So that's yeah. how, that's how I, that's how I cope with that. I might sound, I might sound like Barney the dinosaur in my emails, but I'm, I'd rather be Barney the dinosaur than, than Gregory house in my emails. So <laughs> right. <laughs> this is, this is a great point. All right. Yeah. Have you ever bought anything from an infomercial? You know, I have to say, I actually haven't. Mm. I've, there was a period of time when I was a kid and I would watch PBS and it was during a time when Shining Time Station, or which was a show that basically hosted Thomas the Tank Engine, yeah. and Arthur was on, and they would always do their giving days where they'd say, "Oh, if you make this donation, we'll send you this this tote bag or stuff like that." And they'd say, and they would do this very interesting thing where they say, "Hey, kids, we hope you're watching the show. We'll give you a couple seconds. Bring your parents into the living rooms, you know, and everything. So we, because we'd like to talk to them for a second. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, mom, it's time to come to the living room. And my, and my mom's like, yeah, I'm not falling for that. So, <laughs> you know, but, but that, that was like really good. So I haven't really bought anything off of an, off of an infomercial. I will, I will say, um, because you find out later, like there was this big thing, uh, that was on, on TV for a while, the perfect pancake where you just oh. put it in this, uh, put in this thing, put in this uh, skillet basically that, that closed on itself and then flip it and then flip it around and it would create yeah. these great pancakes. But then people started realizing that there was like about, uh, about a half inch gap in it. So you had to be very quick with it. Otherwise all the batter would spill out. So oh, interesting. I think that's the perfect pancake, but I could be wrong, but it's, you know, and they always say, Oh, it's only for 1995, but you have to pay like 4995 in shipping. And I'm, you know, you just, yeah. And growing up in the DC area, you always have to be very skeptical of things and not fall for, not fall for BS. Yeah, of course. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. just comes with the territory. It does. Yeah. That's a very yeah. Northeastern situation there. Oh yeah. 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 Most definitely. Most definitely. You're from the Northeast too, right? Or are you? Yeah. I grew up in New York. So yeah, that's uh... yeah. So, so, so like we East coasters, like we get it. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is there a movie 
uh, or a, or a show or something that you could, if it's on, you could quote it like almost verbatim as it's going because you've watched it so many times. So when I was kid, when I was a kid, that was uh, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Uh, oh, okay. With, yeah, the um, the Edmund one from Gwynn. the nineties. No, not not the one oh, the from original. the nineties. Yeah, the the original one that had Natalie Wood in it. Yes. Um, and because my mom would say that I I would recite that movie day in and day out, and and also uh, White Christmas as, as well with Bing Crosby and mm. Danny Kaye and. Bear Ellen and Rosemary Clooney. That was another one. Um, I would say nowadays a film that I can almost quote verbatim. It's actually two movies. I would say one would be uh, the Phantom Menace because I watched it so many times as a kid. Cause I was like the first star Wars movie that I saw in the theaters. Yeah. And you know, the quality or how well it was re- received, notwithstanding. And I think the other one might be uh, dodgeball as well. Nice. So you can dodge traffic, you can dodge a dodge a ball, and you know nobody makes me bleed my own blood. And you know after after um, after uh, Rip Torn's character uh, Patches O'Houlihan is killed with the uh, killed with a sign that says "Luck of the Irish" on it, and he and uh, Owen says, "Well, that's probably the way he would have wanted to go," and and everybody just like stares at him and everything. So I'd say it's like those two those two movies. Very different sides of the spectrum on that one. That's good. Well, you know, it, it was one of those things because I remember I, uh, you know, and this is getting this is getting really deep into my mind. But I remember when I was a kid and I had trouble sleeping on Christmas Eve because I was so excited that Christmas was the next day. And so, in order to, um, in order to make myself fall asleep, I would actually start reciting the scripts of Phantom Menace in my head. Uh huh. And it was like, not, not because the movie was necessarily boring, but I just knew that because I was very tired that there would absolutely be no way that I would still be a, asleep by the time. Uh, I think it was usually, I think it was usually around the time that they left for tat that they escaped to tattooing was when I'd fall asleep. So nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tim, last question is again, it's the same one, a piece of art that uh, has most impacted you recently. Because we're kind of getting close to the holidays, mm-hmm. I, my parents and I have this thing where we'll send each other pictures of Christmas trees that are that have lights on them in the mountains, and okay. they have like a sun, they have like a sunset, or like it's it's like dark and you can see the Christmas lights and everything. And so that's just something that you just look at it and it just gives you just that essence of of calm mm-hmm. and everything, um, regardless of how cold it is or anything yeah, yeah, like sure. that. But, uh, but I think it's just a lot of just the juxtaposition of lights and snow. Mm-hmm. It's just so cool to me. It's just, it, uh, my eyes just can't get, a, can't get enough of it. And then I remember on the last episode, we talked about how, or the last time we chatted, how we talked about a, a strange article of clothing. I talked about how I had an Ironman helmet. Well, now, now I know that this is all audio, so you can't, so the, Viewers won't see this, but I actually have a Master Chief helmet now from the Halo series. So, nice. um, I actually, yeah. So, um, you know, anybody that knows me know, that knows that I play video games knows that I'm actually a pretty big um, Halo fan. So, yeah. so, and yeah, I'm actually wearing the helmet right now. So, and it actually like does all these like little sounds and lights and stuff like that. So, it's um, really cool. I also, it was like one of those, uh, 
limited time uh, GameStop prop things that you could get. I also huh. have the 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 try the try goggles from the Splinter from the Splinter Cell series as well. But going back to going back to the piece of art, it's just been a lot of uh, just a lot of those things because in the midst of the craziness of the world, it's always nice to find a little bit of calm and peace, even if you just have to imagine it. It's always so great when our paths cross again, you know, and I'm, and again, thank you for having me again on the show. That's so, that's so, that's so great that, that, um, that you've been able to, um, one of the things I really like about your show is how you really bring in so many different people, you know, people that are at different points in their career, people that are doing the collegiate thing that are doing the, uh, that are doing the, uh, the orchestral, uh, things, other people that are teaching in the public schools or kind of doing their, doing their own thing. And I think that's just really cool what you do. And so I hope you continue it for us as long as you're able and willing to. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. So great to have Tim back on the show. I hope for continued success for him at Northern Colorado and his career moving forward and for his beloved Washington Commanders. Thanks, Tim. This week's rave is actual log rolling for me, which I don't usually do, but I'm going to rave about my recent experience being the Steel Pan guest artist at Southeast Missouri State, or SEMO, and their fall Steel Band concert this past week. I was honored to be invited to do this by CMO's Director of Percussion Studies, Shane Mazzico, who's done great work there with the ensemble and the entire program over the past two decades. If you're not aware, my own compositional past includes a lot of works written for Steel Band Ensemble, and Shane asked me to play with his group, do a clinic and masterclass, and have them work up a number of my pieces along with some of their more popular regular gig band works. It was a blast. First off, most importantly, the students were wonderful. They not only enjoyed my pieces, but were very enthusiastic about the master class and clinic I gave. They seemed engaged and eager, and I really enjoyed getting the chance to chat with and learn more about them while teaching them. Additionally, I was visiting their campus at a great time. It's late fall in Missouri and many of the colors in the trees in town and around campus are still in autumn bloom of some sort. I got driven around both campuses, walked and jogged both campuses in the early mornings, and just loved the scenery there. I was not aware prior to arriving that Cape Girardeau and Southeast Missouri State are literally located on the shores of the Mississippi River. So that vibe is strong and lovely. The facilities also seemed to be in great shape. I really enjoyed working and seeing the academic buildings on the river campus, the academic hall on main campus where the concert was, and everything going on there. It was very impressive. And I was really appreciative of the audiences there for the clinic masterclass and particularly the concert. They were all super excited about the entire concert, including my works, and having them visit pieces like Double Shot, which I hadn't heard in a long time, and others like I Need a Name and Tasty, the concert closer, which I was more familiar with again, 
were really, really cool. And it made me really want to do this kind of thing again. Hey, if you're listening and you're interested, please let me know. But really, honestly, if you're just around great people, you'll be happy doing whatever they ask. So the experiences become very worth it. I can't recommend Shane's program highly enough and am thoroughly appreciative of all he and his crew did for me during my visit. Thanks again, Simo. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Progression Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, at Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Progression Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for more of our interviews for people who presented at PASIC this past year. Until then, and happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>